Our second scripture reading is found in Matthew, chapter 17. You'll find it on page 978 of your Pew Bible. All who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 17, starting with chapter, starting with verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, more than a year after the beginning of lockdowns and mandates and the like, it still blows my mind that the thing that turned the world upside down in so many different ways is a little ball that's 1.25 nanometers across. You know what a nanometer is? 25 million nanometers are needed to make one inch. Now, people have always been afraid, and generally the fear that people feel have been that something huge would tear the world apart, that the sky would fall in a sense. You go to California and people are afraid of what? The big one, an earthquake that will just destroy homes and buildings and come shaking the earth itself. In fact, it's right in the name. Or depending on where you live, maybe people are afraid of the volcano erupting, a wildfire, a massive invasion of enemy troops, or a mushroom cloud vaporizing a city. But the thing that turned most of the world upside down and wreaked havoc just about everywhere is 1.25 nanometers in diameter. That's something. The scriptures speak of this idea as well. In the book of Proverbs, we read Agur, reading uh, Proverbs chapter 30, and he goes on for a few verses about creatures that are small and yet have an enormous effect or impact. Not nanometers small, but very small. He talks about ants, locusts. Think about a locust. A locust is a very little thing. Even the big ones are only about this big, and yet when they swarm together It is the stuff of nightmares. It's apocalyptic. In fact, in Joel, it's used as like a symbol of the coming of armies to basically bring an end to everything. He talks about ants, he talks about locusts, and of course he talks about lizards. You remember that? Maybe not. No one quotes this one. Proverbs 30, 28. The lizard you can take in your hands, and yet it is in king's palaces. I think i got to get over the fact that I would find that really cute to pick up a lizard in my hand. I don't live in the right climate. I know people who live in Florida, and, oh, lizards are not cute. They're a nuisance. They're small, though, the majority of them. The dwarf gecko can curl up 
on a dime. Yet lizards can get past armed guards, huge walls, citadels, the most uh, amazing impediments that mankind can create to keep out. They can get in. They can even get into a king's palace. Those who could keep an army at bay can't keep a lizard Ouch. And there's something especially frightening about that idea. Something so small when it's also very powerful. Even these massive mushroom clouds that we were all very afraid of, I guess it's still a danger. But in the 80s growing up, there was, we weren't getting under our desks. I think we'd figured out by that time the desk isn't going to help. But, but we were still hearing, you know, the Soviets have them pointed at us and it's, it's very scary stuff. But even that big thing, it's, it's a very small power being harnessed smaller by many, many times than even a coronavirus virus, right? It's the atom, the power of the atom being channeled. That's scary. And yet, our gospel reading today seems to teach that faith is also something that can be very, very small and yet unspeakably powerful. And yet this passage does not start with something small but rather with several things that are huge. We're on the heels in this passage of one of the biggest events in all of Jesus' ministry, uh, indeed in all of the Bible. And perhaps this one is runner-up after the resurrection, the crucifixion, and the miraculous conception and virgin birth of Jesus, get the gold, silver, and bronze. This is right behind them, the transfiguration of Jesus. When it's up on a mountain, that's a big thing, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, come with me. I'm going to show you something. They go up on this mountain, and Jesus' divinity is revealed in this amazing, miraculous way. He's, he's glowing, shining with the Shekinah glory of God. And then Moses is there, and Elijah is there. Imagine this. This is huge. And then they come back down. And despite Jesus saying, tell no one about this, I'm nearly certain that it, they kept that secret for like three minutes. Probably Peter started trying to describe what we saw. And it was like, it was like he was glowing like light. And then eventually, like some smug guy who lived in New York for 20 minutes is like, you just had to be there. I can't even describe it. You had to experience it. And, and maybe I'm reading into it, but I think you can almost hear a little jealousy on Matthew's part when you read his account here as he makes Peter out to be such a dope. Why don't we stay here forever? I'll build some little huts for us and this will be our new home. That might just be me. At any rate, though, this was huge. And then when they come back down the mountain, what's waiting for them? A crowd. Not just the 12, not just the 72. It's the kind of ad hoc gathering that happened when Jesus stayed in the same place long enough for word to travel. Mark calls it a great multitude. So it's big as well. And immediately out of this massive crowd comes a guy who brings a problem to Jesus, and it's not a small one. As, as far as problems go, I can't imagine anything bigger. It's so big that the other nine disciples working together, or let's be honest, probably one at a time, uh, separately trying to outdo each other, could not solve it. This man comes to Jesus. Let's just talk about the guy for a minute. We don't know his name, but we know some things about him. First of all, he comes with humility. He comes to Jesus the way you're supposed to. He falls to his knees. He calls him Lord. He approaches in a posture of humility and worship. He, he says that he, he is asking for help on behalf of his son, his only son, according to Mark. And so he has 
poverty of spirit for himself, and he's coming on behalf of someone else, which Jesus seems to really connect with every time it happens. Heal my servant, heal my daughter, and Jesus is, is quick to do that. And this is a guy who's been here for probably a day or so. He, he had no satisfaction from these disciples, and so now he's bringing it to the source. And I think we need to make sure that we, we recognize this guy's heart. I think we can see in his comportment, in his posture, that he doesn't have this, let me talk to your manager, entitled mentality. Rather, this is a guy who knows who Jesus is, or he knows enough to call him Lord, and he knows enough to ask for mercy because he knows that this is who this guy is. He, he's, he's daring because of that to press a little further. In the Greek, this guy's request is basically just two words followed by a long explanation. The two words in Greek are kure eleison. You've heard that, right? What's it mean? Who knows the song? Kyrie eleison on the Roman. You got to do the white man underbite when you do that. Right? That's, that's a bad song, but it's a very prominent phrase. These words are sung in liturgical churches every week and even played on soft rock radio stations every day. But it means, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. What a, what a powerful two words. In the Eastern Church, these are the most common words, the most common phrase in the whole liturgy. Again and again and again, they say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. This is the right prayer, almost regardless of what you're praying. In many liturgical traditions, they'll, they'll have, you know, sometimes one, one will be leading in prayer and everyone will respond with, Lord, hear our prayer, Lord, hear our prayer. And sometimes they will respond with, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Why? Because anything we might ask for, we're asking for grace and we're asking for mercy. And this guy is in need of mercy. What is worse than having a persistent need or problem or ailment that you can do nothing about? Well, for your child to be in pain or horribly frightened, or plagued with some terrible problem, and there's nothing you can do about it. The word here, as he describes his son's issue, it's actually literally moonstruck. That's why in the King James, uh, it sounds like the guy doesn't know what he's saying, kind of like Peter, right, where he doesn't know what he's saying. He says, uh, for he is lunatic. And you go, what? Well, it means that there was some connection in their minds to the, the moon, the cycle of the moon, and the way that this guy would actually fall down to the ground. And it was so dangerous because it seemed to happen more often near a fire or near water. And Dr. Luke comes in, predictably, with an even more graphic description of the, the ailment. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. The thought of something shattering my son is, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine, but I'm not going to. I don't want to. So it's, it's described as epileptic. That's translated here because we're trying to put a, a spin on it. But what's happening here, we know from the text, is dem, a demonic issue. Whether or not it was uh, epilepsy being kind of manipulated in that way, it seems just that there's a, an evil spirit hounding this boy, causing him to fall down in the fire, into the water, and it kind of mirrors something that people were familiar with. Well, he brings this then to the disciples, and the disciples ought to be able to deal with it if it's a demonic possession or oppression, but they have failed. And so Jesus rebukes them. And he rebukes them kind of along with everyone else, the crowd, right? There's the crowd, there's the dad, there's the disciples, and he just says, you faithless and twisted generation, how long will I put up with you? Wow. 
Then bring the boy to me. Mark tells us that as soon as the boy is brought before Jesus, he began to convulse and roll on the ground and foam. This is what happens when we bring Christ close to Satan and powers and principalities. They rage and rage and rage, but they cannot resist the power of Christ. With a word, he breaks the devil's hold on this child and sets him free. Now, we could camp out here for half an hour and talk about how this is what Christ has done for us. Talk about Jesus' power over darkness. Talk about all sorts of different things. But we are going to follow the text here in cutting to a little later when the disciples come to Jesus privately, or some translations say secretly. Maybe the crowd is gone. Maybe they're just on a break to eat. But the disciples came to Jesus and said, why could we not cast it out? They're upset and confused, and understandably so. Seven chapters earlier, not even a year earlier, Jesus had sent them out on a sort of test run, trial run, training mission and told them to preach the gospel, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, he said, freely give. He'd equipped them for this. He granted them the power they needed for this mission and they'd been successful at it. In Luke 10, we read, they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. But they couldn't do it today, and they want to know why not. And we find Jesus' answer at the beginning of verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. Now, I want to suggest something. I hate it when people say the Bible should be translated in a way that no one's ever translated it before because that person is getting a crazy big head and overestimating their own abilities with the, the languages. But I really think it would be helpful if there were a hyphen between little and faith. And Aaron, I know every time I put a hyphen in anything and you edit it, you take all the hyphens out. But the reason for this is because Jesus here actually coins a new word in telling them what their problem was, why they failed. He, he comes up with a new word. He doesn't grant it by putting two words that existed together, but he creates this new word that means little faith. Okay, the, the word is oligopistia. Pistia, from pistis, meaning faith. Oliga, what does that remind you of? Eh? Oligarchy, right? What is an oligarchy? Rule by a few, right? So the archy part not only is archi archi the thing that God told Noah to make, but the archi and oligarchy means uh, power or authority. And in an oligarchy, the very nature of the base of power is that it is small. So that's what we mean here with this oligarchy. So, so it's little, a few people, it's small. Well, Jesus then coins this phrase, oliga faith, oliga pistia, the very nature of this kind of faith is that it is small. He uses this word half a dozen times in the Gospels. He could have, in each case, easily just used the regular word for faith, pistis, and then said, you have a little of it. No problem doing that at all. But instead, he creates a whole new word to describe a kind of faith. And that's why I think we should connect those words somehow, or put quotes around them, or, or something. The word seems to be new, but the idea has been around already. There was a Jewish saying, if a man has bread in his basket and yet worries what he will eat, that man has little faith. It was in Hebrew, so it wasn't using Jesus' new word, but seems to be the same idea. Perhaps that's what Jesus is even referencing. You've heard of this little faith. That's what you've got, guys. You've got bread in your basket, but you're worried what you will eat. 
So it was because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, now let's stop there before we get to the then, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, the NIV translates, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, this is more faithful uh, to the original. It just simply says if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed or like a grain of mustard seed. And yes, of course, mustard seed was a measure of smallness. It was the smallest seed that people would regularly plant. But Jesus here is not commending smallness of faith in this passage. He's not commending their little faith. Jesus is exasperated by their little faith. He makes that clear. And he actually contrasts their little faith with this faith as a grain of mustard seed. They're two very different things. It's a qualitative difference. A different sort of faith altogether. It's not faith in self. It's not faith in faith, which seems to be the most popular kind these days. Just believe. Believe. Huge things happen if you believe. Believe you can and you can. Okay, tell that to Andrew and Matthew and all the other seven who believed they could cast out this demon and totally could not. More little faith is not the answer. It's not a problem of quantity. It's a problem of quality. Remember, this is a category, a kind of faith that Jesus puts a name to. You can have a lot of this little faith, but it's still little faith. It's not suddenly biblical faith, the faith Jesus is commending to them and calling them to exercise. This passage is is sadly often referenced without any view to all this stuff. In fact, maybe the most common way this passage is referenced is on television by the sort of snake oil salesmen of the religious world, televangelists. Usually, This is mixed in and confused with Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, where the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That's not the same teaching exactly. We want to keep things in their context. But those whom Luther called Christmongers will do whatever they can to use Christ's name to fill their bank accounts. And so they'll tell people that if things aren't going well for you, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's a problem of quantity. And to show God that you have enough faith Wouldn't you know it, you just need to send me a little money. In fact, they'll even call it a seed offering, implying that this is the mustard seed Jesus was talking about. If you come across something like that, a quick way to deal with it is off. Um, uh, The worst way to deal with it is long screed comment. A friend told me that. I never learned that myself. So what are they missing then? If it's not just a lack of, of, of quantity... What, what, what is it a lack of? It wasn't a lack of confidence either, although I've heard that taught. Far from it. Look how bewildered these guys are that it didn't work. How, why weren't we able to do it? In fact, just as Jesus is not commending their little faith here, he's, he's not commanding huge, audacious prayers as proof of their massive faith. Not in this text. Now, certainly we may come across that elsewhere in the Bible, that God wants us to pray big things and, and show a great amount of faith in him, but find it where it is. What is Christ teaching us in this text? I heard recently one of those kind of dream big inspirational TED Talk things started with the speaker saying, everybody in your mind, pick a number. Waited a moment. And then he said, okay, who picked a number between 1 and 10? More than half the people raised their hand. All right, who picked a number between 10 and 100? Almost everyone else raised their hand. He said, who picked a number over a million? Only a couple people 
He said, why not? Why are you thinking so small? Why not, why not pick 58 billion, 237 million and nine or something? And then he went on to talk about Google, naturally. Did you guys know one of the two founders of Google was born right here in Lansing, graduated from East Lansing High School. I rarely hear anyone talk about this. Went to U of M, was just a regular guy. And when these two guys named their little upstart search engine, they named it for a mathematical term, which means a one with a hundred zeros after it. And they spelled it wrong, but whatever. You gotta be cute. And that fits Google now because it's enormous. But when they started out, they were just another little try-hard search engine trying to find some funding. They were like another Yahoo wannabe, which is funny to say out loud now, but that was the case. So what made them different? Well, the speaker said it was because they had such audacious, huge, they said, what do we name it? A hundred? A thousand? No, not even a million. A Google. So it was their big dreams. You kidding me? Watch a documentary. Silicon Valley was just lousy with people who had big dreams and believed in them and were trying to find more funding and talking about all the amazing things they do to what they call them, seed stage investors. What was the difference then? It was that Google's idea that they believed in turned out to actually be viable and a good idea and work. It was the object of that belief, not the intensity. In Mark 9, I think we see this fairly clearly. This is the parallel text to this story of uh, the, the man with the, the son who falls to the ground and Jesus casts out the, the spirit. And, and we get more of the dialogue between them. And he says, if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. I read this and go, there, that's not a sentence. It's a sentence fragment, and it's almost like Jesus starts quoting this guy is and, and interrupts himself. If you, if you can, no, all things are possible for the one who believes. But here's the question. Believes in what? All things are possible for the one who believes that all things are possible? Some have read it that way, and many people live their lives as if that's what Jesus is teaching. Reminds me going way back to the 1900s. Remember that movie? Prince of Egypt. It was a cartoon about Moses. You, you, I hope you do. It was great. If not, rent, oh, you can't rent it. Never mind. But it was a story of, of Moses, and, and it was really well done, and there was a lot of really biblical stuff in it, and there was songs. It was a musical, and there was a song, and it was made famous by Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston singing, and it was very pretty, but it was, there can be miracles if you believe. And I hear that and go, oh, that's a little wishy-washy. There can be miracles if you believe that there can be miracles. They actually changed the words to that from you can do miracles if you believe. And faith groups were like, that's a little bit over the top. So they changed it to there can be miracles. No, what matters is the object of your belief. There can be miracles if you believe in one who is powerful and can do miracles and empower you to do miraculous things. It matters the object of your belief and confidence. Tomorrow, I'm getting the second vaccine shot. Probably over here, actually. And you know what? That's also very teeny tiny minuscule and hopefully very powerful and seems to be. But it's only as powerful as the object of that confidence. 
There were undoubtedly people involved in the trials who got a shot and said, all right, I'm all set now, and went nuts, but they had gotten a placebo. And there was no protection for them at all. It wasn't powerful. The object of faith is what matters. God does not look down and say, oh, you believe a ton in stuff that's completely wonky, but I'll honor that level of belief as if it were belief in me, the one true God. If that were the case, he would have had no problem with all the idolatry going on in the Old Testament world and the New Testament world for that fact. The reason the disciples couldn't cast out the demon was because their faith was little in quality. And what made it little in quality was that it had a mixed object. It wasn't all fixed on the one true God. It wasn't all placed in Christ himself. If they had the kind of faith Jesus calls them to have, even if it was tiny in quantity, mustard seed quantity, there'd be no end to what they could do. This biblical faith trusts that the word of Christ is sufficient. This makes me think of David's psalm, some trust in horses, some in chariots, but I will trust in the Lord. In the church today, we might say, some trust in, in branding, some trust in programs, but we will trust in these things, these things. The things, the word of Christ, the things that were given to us that we might trust in them. Trusting that they, although they look small to the world, you're reading out of a book, you're eating a little tiny bit of bread and drinking a little bit of the... Listen, these are things that are powerful. This is what biblical faith looks like saying, I'm not going to go by the world's lens, horses, chariots, massive lighting rigs and whatever else we're going to trust in. All those things can be used for good as long as your faith is in Christ himself. Now, I want you to look in your Bible here at verse 21 with me. Read it out loud with me. Ready? <gasps> Everyone put their Bible up? What are you doing? You got it out? All right. All right. Now you got it open. Here we go. Verse 21. It's not there, right? You know why? Because the devil looked at your King James Bible and said, I'm going to steal some verses. I'm kidding. No. What happened was almost certainly a scribe at some point was copying this and said, oh, there's a missing verse. And put this in because this is a verse that takes place in Mark. It's in the Bible. And what you see in a footnote at the bottom of your, uh, your, your Bible is undoubtedly uh, this idea that this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. I have a, at the bottom of my ESV, I have that footnote. And, and we find that, of course, in Mark chapter 9. Jesus says to them, listen, you have little faith. This kind of, of spirit only comes out by prayer and by fasting. Denying self and trusting entirely in Christ. What is fasting if not saying, look, I'm not even going to feed the flesh I am going to trust entirely in, uh, in God. It's almost like a, a microcosm of doing what Gideon did with his armies, where he said, I'm not going to have this massive army. I'm going to have a little army so that God can shine through. I'm, I'm going to not trust in myself. I'm going to trust in him. That's how this kind comes out. Little faith trusts in self by default and only seeks out Jesus in secret and after they have failed trusting in self. Biblical faith trusts in Christ first and last and everywhere in between. Edward Moat, who wrote the uh, great hymn on Christ the solid rock I stand, which I think might just be called My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, but whatever, you know the song. He was not only a Baptist preacher, but also 
a carpenter, which I think is what makes the line so cool where he says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. There's nothing that we can build, no lattice, nothing powerful enough to hold our trust that's worthy of our trust. I will wholly put my weight instead on Jesus' name. Jesus is contrasting these two things. One that says, I'm going to probably keep most of my weight on me and I'll lean on, on Christ when I need to. That's little faith. Oligopistia versus biblical faith, which says, trust fall on Jesus. Trusting that he will catch me because he has promised he will never leave me or forsake me. I do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. This is defective faith versus effective faith. Contrasting the little faith, the biblical faith, the faith that surrenders completely to the will of God. Remember 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything, anything according to his will, he hears us. According to his will. That means surrendering our wills to his will. And when we do that, the results are huge. And Jesus lays them out in very graphic terms again. This is a very pictorial a visual passage. You've got the little tiny mustard seed in mind and then massive zoom back to some mountains. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. This passage has always been a little bit controversial. Unbelievers will point at it as evidence that Jesus' teaching is completely out of touch with reality. After all, if it weren't, mountains would be moving all over the place all the time. There's so many Christians praying. Believers read it and wonder, why don't I have this faith? Has no one ever had even a mustard seed worth of faith? True faith? After all, nobody's moving mountains that I know of apart from bulldozers and things. At the heart of both of these questions is an ignorance of the Bible and its context, and that's okay. Just keep reading. Just keep learning. Moving a mountain was a very common phrase in the Old Testament world, in Hebraic thought in general and literature, to describe something that seems impossible, especially removing a great obstacle to one's goal or to what we believe to be God's will. At least three times, Isaiah alone uses this. He talks about, remember, every uh, mountain being made low and every valley being exalted and, and making straight the way for the Lord. This is kind of the extreme version of that. Make straight the way for the Lord. Not just straight so it doesn't curve, but if there's a mountain there, we're moving it. We're not even just going through it like they do to make a highway. We're moving that thing. That is the picture. There's an obstacle there. This faith, this kind of faith, even a mustard seed worth, will make it go away. But notice... He doesn't say a mountain or any mountain, but you could say to this mountain. What mountain are they near? They've just come down a mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration, right? And perhaps there's something more in this for the three of those guys who'd been on this mountain and those of us who have just read about what happened up on this mountain. Remember, Peter had wanted to set up camp and stay up there where everything was amazing and God's presence was palpable and the saints who had gone before were there to encourage them. Let's just stay here. Let's just, guys, this is great. Let's just stay here. I'll build some shacks. But Jesus had compassion on the crowds that were waiting. He knew who was there. He knew who needed him. And he said, no, it's time to go back down. But that's okay, perhaps, is the subtext here in this text. 
Because we can go back down from this mountain top, but by faith, you can bring this mountain with you. This mountain. God's presence, that stuff comes with you. The cloud of witnesses that encourages you, that stuff is with you, according to Hebrews. Being, being in God's presence and enjoying it and seeing the divinity of Christ and his glory goes with you. There's a definite connection, I think, between this text and Moses having gone up to Mount Sinai while the rest of Israel stays down, the 12 tribes, and they, and they fail the test of faith almost immediately. And in Sinai, the amazing stuff was up at the top of the mountain with Moses. Well, the rest of them are left down here going, well, up there is crazy and God is there, but down here, we're left to our own devices. They didn't recognize that God was down there with them as well because he is everywhere. They were still thinking like Egyptian people. They'd been there too long. The same thing is happening here. They don't get that even though Jesus is up there, he's down here with them as well. They're going to have to get that soon. At least the power he gave them was with them, and he's going to say to them, listen, I, I'm going to give you the comforter. He's going to be with you always. In fact, that's the next thing he tells them, by the way, is that soon I'm leaving, and you're going to have to understand this. That Just like Peter learned when he's walking on water, and when he looks to the wind and the waves instead of to Christ, he sinks. For us, with Jesus, is not even in sight physically. We have to yet keep our eyes on him in order that our faith will not slowly become little faith. And we begin to look down and trust in ourselves and sink. You may be facing something in your life right now that seems like an immovable mountain. Take your eyes off the mountain and look to Jesus. Fall on your knees like this heartbroken father and say, Lord, have mercy. Kiri eleison. Ask him to give you faith. Not the kind of faith whose quality is small, but the kind of faith that even a little bit Lord, give me just a mustard seed of that good stuff. The true faith, the biblical faith that looks to you and you alone. And yes, there still are struggles. And we see that playing out in the Gospels. Jesus is right here and there's still heartbreak. There's still the effects of the fall. For believers, some powers are more difficult to break than others. Some demons, the, the disciples were just like out and they went out. And then this one, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. I hear, you know, we're, we're soon actually going to go into, in, in Ephesians, I'm going to do a little series within a series when we get to the armor of God and we're going to talk about each element of the armor of God on a week. I'm kind of excited about it. And this is the sort of stuff we're talking about. But for some people, you know, they get saved and immediately go, boom, my, my addiction is gone. Just disappeared overnight. I've told you my pastor, Ed Pikey, said, uh, when I got saved, my language just went rated G. Suddenly, I didn't even notice until people pointed it out. Others will say, oh, as soon as I got saved, I no longer felt any ill will toward my father who used to beat me. It just disappeared. For others, this sort of stuff takes time. And that's why I think it's beautiful that Jesus says, look, prayer and fasting, these are things that take time. I'll be with you while you do them. And then look at the next thing. It's crazy to me. Right after chapter 17, they jump right into, oh, we got it. All right, let's get back to our argument about who's the greatest. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in front of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That was what they needed to hear. I believe we see this modeled by the boy's father here in this text. In Mark 9, in the parallel, right after Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes... 
Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. This little bit of faith, this mustard seed of true faith in Christ is planted and begins to grow as Jesus answers that prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. Where my, where my faith is little faith, push it out with true faith. In many ways, this is the Christian life in a nutshell or in a little seed. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, you declared me righteous. Help me put to death my sin nature. Lord, you've called me to be strong and courageous. Help me with fear. And when we call out to him, he will help us. He came down from the mountaintop to help this man. Peter, James, and John have just seen this in vivid detail. Right there, up there, Moses, Elijah, all this, the cloud. This is the cloud of glory that was in the Holy of Holies. Where if you went in there as a regular guy, or even as the high priest at the wrong time of year, you're dead. And it surrounded and enveloped them. And there they were. In the midst of this glory. And for Peter, this is heaven. In some very real ways, it kind of really was. And he doesn't understand why anyone would want to leave it and go back down there with all those dirty, annoying people. But Christ, who actually was in heaven, came down to seek and save the lost. And this becomes a teaching moment for his three closest disciples. Yeah, it's kind of better up here. There's a crowd down there. They're probably all selfish and demandy and grabby as always. Thick-headed, like you guys. What was that? Nothing. There's a conflict, certainly, involving the rest of the disciples. There's suffering and depressing stuff down there. But this is what I came for. If I was going to stay above it all, I could have stayed on the throne of God, the heavenly throne room. And this is comforting when we remember that we're the ones down in the multitude who need his help, struggling to believe, often failing as disciples, attacked by evil, and often succumbing to the attacks. Jesus comes to our aid. And when we do fall or fail, as these disciples had, we can, like these disciples, go to him privately, knowing he won't reject us or turn us away, but forgive us and reinstate us. He'll see where our faith is lacking and help to build it up. Where our wick is smoldering, he will fan it into full flame. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Purify my faith, imperfect as it is. Burn away all the confidence in myself, in my flesh, in my abilities, in my strength, in my youth, in my years of wisdom and experience. This teaching does not hold us back from Christ, but draws us near to Him. Think again about that Jewish saying, if a man has bread in his basket and yet worries what he will eat, he has little faith. It's not talking about saving faith, right? Again, what matters with that is the object of your faith. You throw yourself at His mercy and you are saved. His disciples were saved and Jesus said, you've got little faith. The thief on the cross didn't have great understanding of every aspect of this stuff, but he was saved. The disciples believed in Jesus for salvation, and the guy in the Proverbs still has bread. He's not going to starve, but he's needlessly tied up in knots, needlessly distracted and ineffective, and he lacks the peace that he could have right now in the moment. Look in the basket, dude. You've got bread. You've got what you need. 
because he's afraid of every little thing when even faith like a grain of mustard seed can move mountains. And finally, I want to point to those two questions that Jesus asks in exasperation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? He was saying this because he knew his time was short. How long, how long can I keep on doing this before you're going to get it? For those who believe, though, these questions have wonderful answers. How long will I suffer you? He's long-suffering. That is the word used to describe God again and again and again. He will walk with us even when our faith is weak and misplaced. And how long will he be with us? Well, he tells us at the end of this very book, ten chapters later, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the world. Put your faith in him and him alone. Yes, sometimes we've all got little faith. And that's when the prayer comes up. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me place my faith in you alone. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, we thank you for this man's faith, which in the moment seemed to outshine the faith of Jesus' own disciples. We pray that you would give us a faith that is even as small as a mustard seed, if it's the biblical faith, if it's the kind that trusts only in you, only in a God who is mighty to save, never in ourselves, never in our horses or chariots or car or job or gifts and talents or any of it, only in you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.